0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to USIP. Uh, I'm Don Jensen, director of the Russia and Europe program here. It's a great pleasure to introduce a distinguished occasional colleague, distinguished guest, uh, here this morning. Uh, Putin's defiance of the global or world order has steadily grown more brazen over time. Of course, beginning in Georgia, if not earlier, in 2008, uh, two rounds of the Kremlin War, uh, and to everybody's surprise, maybe not our guest's surprise, it seemed to have run aground unexpectedly against the predictions of most uh, Russian experts here and in Europe. and. Uh, uh, what that means and significance is something we want to sort out today, I hope, with our guests. But uh, there are other issues at play here as well, the European security architecture, Russia's strategic thinking and view of the world, uh, the implications of uh, what's going on for the uh, possible transition in, Mo- in Moscow. And to address these things, and he'll be, I'm sure, as comprehensive as ever, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mark Galliotti, who I'm sure most of you see on. Uh, read on social media, see as many publications. I'm always having my breath taken away. at how prolific he is, uh, but it's a great pleasure to see him after a couple of years again today. Mark, of course, is also affiliated with a number of the prestigious institutions. He's a consultant. He's a, a media celebrity and someone, I think, who a lot of us read uh, with great diligence uh, and interest uh, as often as we can. He's also the, the next book is coming out next week. It's called Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, uh, coming out next week. And uh, I encourage you all to take a look, look at it. So this morning, we're going to begin by having Mark make some remarks. Then we're going to have a Q&A session. There's no fireplace, but it is a fireside chat, And we encourage both the people online and also the people here in the hall to uh, submit their questions. Our, our assistant will take them, field them, Pass them to me, and I will present them to Mark for his discussion. So again, thank you all for watching online. Thank you to the people here in the hall. And Mark, good to see you again. Good morning.
2: Hi, Ned. Well, great to be here. And again, it's always difficult to know quite what what to talk about, in the sense that there is so much to talk about. And and also, obviously, I, I could fill any amount of time with the sound of my own voice. So in order to try and kind of impose some discipline on myself, I really want to confine myself to three Opening points about Putin and his thinking about war. Secondly, about what we've learned from what's happened in the war, and particularly the, the triumph of autocracy over technocracy. And thirdly, about trying to kind of look forward, this is after all the US Institute of Peace, and think about precisely the long term potential outcomes. So let's start with, with, with Putin and war. Um, it, it's easy to say, oh, Putin, he, he's, a, he's a bad man. He is a bad man. He's a warmonger. Not so much. Putin does not engage in war for the sheer unbridled joy of it. He loves military, shall we say. This is not a man who can walk past a tank without being photographed, um, his head peeking out of the, of the hatch. Um, you know, but nonetheless, it's more that he regards warfare as a perfectly acceptable instrument of international statecraft. And in this respect, as in so many others, I think he is a a 19th century geopolitician. In many ways, what he does is something that that the Bismarcks and the Napoleons of this world would find entirely understandable and recognizable. And I say 19th century rather than anyone else, because 19th century is this time in which not only do you have a continuing, frankly, sort of notion that might makes right, but it's also the colonial era. An era in which there is a, a sort of a clear, if often implicit, demarcation of the world between those proper countries that have genuine sovereignty, and that basically means European countries and North America, and then the rest of the world that is, in a way, fair game. Its sovereignty is destined to be subordinate to those of the metropolis. Again, I think that's very much part of, of Putin's thinking, that there are proper countries and there are the others. And proper countries have to demonstrate their sovereignty by, if need be, imposing it. But you'd rather not. The same way as actually, in my view, Putin does not assassinate people left, right, and center. But he has no problem doing so when he feels it is necessary or appropriate. Well, likewise, invasions. He invades for a reason. And I think in that context, you know, we need to appreciate that this is... In its own terms, and I would absolutely stress that, a rational process. Putin may well believe a lot of deeply problematic, deeply unpleasant things. And he clearly has also been dramatically misinformed by a system that in many ways he created to misinform him. And I'll come up to that in a moment. But nonetheless, there is a rationality at work. This is not a man who, despite some of the breathless accounts always escalates when he's in a a corner. Well, he doesn't, actually. As we've seen most recently with the grain deal. He pulls out, he says, no, 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 it's not gonna happen. He's put in a position in which, in effect, his bluff is called. He has to either use direct military force against the, the grain ships, with the massive risks of escalation, as well as international opprobrium. And at which point it's, no, 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 when we said we were pulling out, we meant suspending. And we've had a look, and now we've got the guarantees and, and the suspension's over. And again, look, I mean, it, and this is not in any way to defend him, but I think we have to recognize the degree to which this is a man who is willing to do extraordinarily unpleasant things when he thinks it's in his interest. He has no problem with that. But the point is, there is also well, there is always a degree of calculus behind it. And this is a man who, after all, believes that Russia is defending itself. And again, I say this not in any way to espouse or support his perspective, but because we have to appreciate, understand where he's coming from in order to try and understand where he may go next. This is a man who believes that basically Russia has been neglected and assailed. The 1990s, frankly, actually Western policy towards Russia did make some astonishing blunders in the 1990s and helped contribute to the rise of, not necessarily Putin, but someone like Putin nonetheless, you know that the 1990s has been reinterpreted now as an era in which the West, at best, neglected Russia, and at worst, actively sought to plunder and, and demean it. Since then, you know, essentially, in Putin's mind, all the times we push back against human rights abuses, particularly ones in the context of war, if one looks at the Second Chechen War, for example, he more or less had assumed that he, done, that was, he had carte blanche. But as well, we're all involved in the global war on terror. You can have your war on terror, and I will have mine. And and I think there was a a genuine outrage on the part of Putin and others when we started saying, well, hang on, look at the appalling human rights abuses that have been carried out in the name of counterinsurgency in Chechnya. And his view was, hang on, don't don't we have an understanding? We're, We're not hassling you. Why are you hassling us? Really, from this point onwards, he has seen the world through this prism of... Uh, uh, an essentially hostile, conspiratorial West that is trying to do Russia down. And you know, when you look for that, when, when that's what you're expecting to find, and if you look carefully, you can find, if not evidence, at least grounds to persuade yourself of that. And I do feel that one of the, you know, obviously we we, we know quite a few issues. I and mean, the, the thing, things that are points like 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 the Libyan bombings and so forth, which have become sort of. Um, course, In many ways, I, I think actually the Balotnaya protests that greeted Putin on his return to power after his little sham period um, as, as, as Prime Minister were again, I think for him, proof, quote unquote, that the West was now coming for him. The West was now fomenting anti-government uh, insurrection in, in Russia. So this is this is the kind of the context. This is a man who, you know, believes that sometimes war is necessary, and believes that he's fighting defensive wars to maintain Russia's status, its role, its sovereignty, its standing in the world. And that that I think sort of helps explain sort of the, the context we're in. But the point is, it's also this is also a man who is who has created an essentially autocratic political system over, over the years. I'm going to remember this, Putin and Putinism. 2022 vintage is not the same as year 2000. This has changed, and in many ways, the system has ossified around Putin. This kind of strange, Putin-shaped um, sort of bubble in the middle, and, and bit by bit the sort of system has built around him. Um, for years, his circle has been shrinking. Uh, alternative voices, you know, whether it's people like fi- you know, former finance minister Kudrin or others who actually were willing to stand up to him. Have been marginalized. But more, in my opinion, even more importantly is what's happened to the bureaucratic process. Um, you know, I, I, I spoke to one person who had been involved, this was back in 2015, um, with the briefing process for, for Putin. And, and, and he was talking about the degree to which actually, you know, reports that were based on good intelligence and good analysis, but then in in the, in the next stage of the, the intelligence cycle, um, you know, reports were then hurriedly rewritten. Briefers were actually very, very carefully coached to make sure that they didn't say anything that Putin wouldn't want to hear. Increasingly, the system told Putin what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. And look, the system can, can go on quite, you know, quite a long time on that kind of a basis, cocooning the leader, because there's a lot of smart people within the system who are still keeping the system going. I mean, we should never underestimate the degree. Just as we should never underestimate Russians' to, you know, capacity to mess things up, we should also never underestimate the capacity of the Russians to manage in dysfunctional circumstances. Um, but obviously then you know, what happens is, and then at some point it works fine, and then at some point it doesn't. And as we saw this with the actual invasion, The Russians have a very carefully structured sort of process for handling military operations. And in part, it's based on precisely an awareness of their own weaknesses. They still have not really got a culture of proper initiative um, at the lower levels of command. That there is corruption, that there is inefficiency, that a lot of the stuff's not going to work the way it's meant to, all that kind of thing. They're aware of that. For me, it's quite a nice metaphor. Particularly in Moscow, there are these centres, the so-called multifunctional centres, where you go to basically have contact with representatives from a whole variety of different government departments. So you still have all kinds of stupid and pointless regulations, such as you know, the one that often sort of caught me up was precisely the need to register. If a foreigner is staying with you, you actually have to go and register. And that involves a huge amount of paperwork. I mean, if you're staying with a friend, the friend has to, amongst other things, present full document to prove that they actually own the property in which you're staying, all that kind of thing. So, on the one hand, ridiculously onerous and frankly entirely pointless bureaucracy. But instead of just simply saying, let's not bother with this registration process, what they did is they created these multifunctional centres where you go along, you take a chip, you go and talk to someone, in this case from, from the Ember, the uh, Interior Ministry, and it actually gets handled pretty neatly and pretty easily by people who actually know it. So it's this kind of strange, very Russian way around things. You don't actually fix the dysfunction. You find ways of making it as least dysfunctional as possible. And in some ways, a lot of that the military. I mean, I, I can go into detail with people more interested in the Q&A. But actually, there's a whole military sort of superstructure of means, none of which was activated. I mean, you know, sort of the, the, the basic structure, which would have, which would have managed the, the process of the war, made sure it had a proper, credible political objective, single unitary command, the forces it needed, and most, perhaps most importantly of all, the resources it needed. I mean, that was only stood up literally a day or so before the invasion, and these things take at least two weeks just to constitute, let alone to actually do their job. There's all kinds of other examples of that. The degree to which actually. You know, a technocratic system which worked out really quite effective ways of getting around the dysfunctions of the system was just not activated. Instead, Putin had his war. His people probably, the Security Council Secretariat you know, actually ended up planning a war for which they were not qualified or, or, or anything like that. And we see the disaster that follows. And so many of the kind of subsequent disasters are precisely because of the failures in that first week or two of the war. They burnt through their best soldiers. They burnt through the opportunity to strike with you know, have the initiative and so forth. So in some ways, I mean, I, I say this with a certain degree of tongue-in-cheek, sort of but you know, actually Putin was in many ways Ukraine's best ally. And he continues to be as he continues to micromanage. But what does this mean for the future? At the moment, we have the mantra that the war ends when Ukraine decides. I hope we all appreciate the degree to which that is rubbish. Um, Not because in any way we actually want to uh, undermine the Ukrainians in the slightest, but let's not pretend that there are a whole variety of interests at work. If the the Ukrainians decide that war will only end when they have taken back historical lands of the Zaporizhian Cossacks or whatever else, or that in fact uh, Bielgorod and and Rostov-on-Don are historically part of, of the Ukrainian state, we would have something to say about that. At the moment, though, unfortunately, I think we use this mantra, both because it signals something that, is, that it needs to be signaled, which is precisely the degree to which we are supporting Ukraine in the full recovery of its sovereignty and its statehood, which does need to be constantly reaffirmed, but also because we are avoiding the difficult debates about what the end looks like. And these are difficult, they're difficult enough to, by sort of my sort of reading in D.C., let alone when you also start bringing in the whole of the NATO alliance and the European Union and such like. But we have to be thinking about them. And I think this, for me, is one of the big concerns I have about policy at the moment. That it's, it's, it's about how do we arm Ukraine adequately. And that is absolutely necessary and right and proper. It is about how we keep the Ukrainian economy afloat, which is in many ways, I would say, at least as, if not more important than the issue at this stage, than the issue of military supplies. We're kind of beginning to talk about reconstruction of Ukraine, sort of, broadly, but no one really wants to start putting figures onto that. But nonetheless, at least we're aware that Ukraine will need to be rebuilt. And some kind of way of fitting it within... Western political, economic, and, if need be, security structures. But we're not thinking about (coughs) Russia. And, okay, it's easy to say that. Well, the Russians are the bad guys. They're the aggressors. Yes, they are. But when the war ends, there's still going to be 140-plus million of them. Um, And Ukraine's long-term security cannot be guaranteed simply by arms or by membership of NATO or, or especially by membership of the European Union. Sorry, that's a, that a little, little, little British observation. Um, <laughs> you know, Ukraine's long-term future depends on some kind of modus vivendi with, with Russia. Ideally, a happy, prosperous, working, democratic Russia. Now, however, at the moment, implausible that sounds... I don't think it's impossible, but it's certainly, we're a way away from that. But nonetheless, in terms of long-term thinking, that is gonna be Ukraine's best security guarantee. And I think at the moment, we, we, we have a problem thinking about what kind of relationship with Russia we want in any positive sense. We have a problem relating to the Russian people in any positive sense. My big concern is precisely that we are so concerned about supporting Ukraine, rightly and properly, but we forget about the long-term relationship with, with Russia. If we start treating all Russians as if they are um, ardent supporters of the regime and of the war, then we will make them ardent supporters of the regime and the war because they will have nothing else. We do not want to repeat the Treaty of Versailles mistake of just simply creating an impoverished but angry Russia that in one year or five years or ten years may be back. Quite possibly not in, in military terms. But there are ample ways that Russia can make life difficult for Ukraine in the future. So my, my closing point is I, you know, I, I hope that we can begin to think more, more imaginatively about what kind of a future relationship we want with Russia. It's not going to be up to us to create Russia's future political system. Unless, I don't know, I can imagine if Putin does start using non-strategic nuclear weapons, then probably issues of regime change may well be back on the table under discussion. But we've shown that we're much better at changing regimes than managing what happens afterwards, so I don't think we've got a particularly impressive track record there. But nonetheless, we do need to be thinking about what we can do, if nothing else, in Hippocratic terms, to do no harm. How can we at least ensure that our policy does not actually drive Russia, whether it's into the hands of China or whether it's into the hands of extremists or just into an angry slough of despond, which doesn't help anyone. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, my peroration, and I'd well, much there, rather that throw that, it out to a question. Uh, I want to remind the visitors
1: at home, there is a chat box if you want to ask our guests some questions. But let me start with a question about, I can you call it Putin's team? Uh, you and I have done work on strategic culture. To what extent is, I would say, the evident bubbling of some of the elements in the Kremlin around Putin? about the war, or maybe even other things. What's going on here?
2: Fine. <laughs> well, it's a shame we won't have time for any more questions. Um, <laughs> that, that'll easily take take the next 40 minutes to do properly. Now, I mean, joking apart, I am struck by the degree to which, if one looks at the people who are closest to Putin, the people he listens to the most, they're all aged between 68 and 74. Most of them are either ex-KGB or ex- you know old Leningrad cronies. Also though most of them did not come from within the so say hereditary Soviet elite. They were all first generationers. They finally, you know this is it, they finally broken into the big time. They had joined the aristocracy that was the Communist Party nomenklatura and then suddenly all that went away. So, I mean, this for me is very much, it, it's, it's the last true homo-sovieticus generation that we're dealing with, who are infused by this sense of not just what did we lose, but uh, when it metastasizes into and who took it from us. So, I mean, there is a real emotional charge that, interestingly, I didn't find back, back when I was still allowed to travel to Russia, um, in my conversations like with the 50-somethings and the early 60-somethings, the next political generation are waiting to take over. They are absolutely, they are kleptocrats, they are pragmatic opportunists, they are not necessarily nice people, but they do not seem to have this emotional commitment, shall we say, to the struggle against, against the West. I think that's, that's one of the most kind of disturbing elements so of it. They don't really buy into that
1: great Putin vision.
2: In the main, I don't think so. I mean, look, are, are they patriots and or, you know, or, or maybe even nationalists? Yeah, absolutely. But the point is, this is the interesting thing about, about Putin. I mean, he is, he is devastating his country in the name of some kind of a cause, which is almost to teach the West a lesson. And I think this is, this is the difference. The other other generation of pragmatists, it's not that they want the West to necessarily prosper. They don't care as long as they get to buy their nice penthouses in London and steal at home and bank abroad. Good old days. Um, But nor do they actively have a a reason to sort of see the West damaged for the sake of it. So I think this is a problem. You've got a a kind of a strategic culture, which I think we're both agreeing that that, that Graham Hurd's recent book is, is, is very good at addressing which is a kind of a wider Russian strategic culture that has been sort of built up over years, decades, centuries, arguably, that, that talks about you know Russia's place in the world as a European and an Asian power and such like. But then it's put through this distorting lens by this particularly small generation of people who on the whole have very little, I mean, firstly, they, they have very little practical experience of the outside world. Um, who are still infused with with a lot of the Soviet-era mentalities, but most importantly, of all have this resentment of a post-imperial generation, which is always hard. Look, all empires have trouble coping with that, said the Brit. Um, Uh, But the point is, in in, in Russia, it was an especially traumatic experience. Interesting. Okay, let's start with questions for Graham. Uh,
1: Start with the room here. Wait for the microphone to approach. Sir... When it arrives with you, please do it. Uh, since we're a uh, small pause here, uh, there's a lot of talk about personal, Putin's personal characteristics, whether he's rational or not, or he never backs down. <laughs> Could you say something about whether he backs down? And maybe the green, the grain deal is an evidence that he might. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, Putin backs down all the time when he feels that that's the necessary thing to do. Think of it as just his very first stab at Kiev. Um, you know, he, he, first of all he had this bizarre notion that essentially because he knew that Ukraine was a failed state that more or less he could just kind of you know, send, send, send a few units of paratroopers motoring into the center of the capital to arrest the government um, when that didn't happen you know, he, he, he steadily escalated the forces deployed you had this huge long sort of, for a long time immobile convoy um, of forces but when it became clear that that wasn't going to work it's not like he said, well, then we're going to nuke Kiev or anything like that. He decided, OK, so we pull those forces back. We reorient our strategy to Donbass and the Crimean Corridor. Um, so I think generally, you know, we have to appreciate the degree to which, yes, this is not a person who um, wants to be seen as backing down. Of course, because there's a whole kind of macho characteristic persona there. And there are going to be some red light. I don't like actually talk about red lights. Because most red lines are no more than pink they are kind of no 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 we really don't want this except if we really can't do anything about it I think Crimea is the one thing that I think would be problematic for him for a whole variety of reasons to actually lose um, but apart from that you know, he, he will make this like the rest of us he makes cost benefit analyses. if he thinks he can escalate and get away with it fine but on the other hand if he feels he has to cut his losses he's demonstrated that he does that Great.
1: Sure. And please identify yourself yeah. if you feel like it. Thank you so much for, uh, it's interesting. I'm Lewis Wasser. I'm a research affiliate at Yale University, and I'm actually a former USIP doctoral fellow. So, um, I, A little bit about trade-offs between military preparedness and coup-proofing, so how the internal tensions in the different security services make... Russia more or less prepared for the war in Ukraine, and the trade-offs between that and Putin staying in power? And and just what you see as the necessary pillars of the regime on the security service side, and beyond the security services, if you have time. Obviously, there are probably other questions, too, so.
2: okay. um, so I don't actually think there is necessarily a direct trade-off between military preparedness and and coup-proofing. I mean, this is indeed a very kind of robust, carefully coup-proofed system in many ways actually just simply inheriting that from Soviet times when they're always very afraid of bonapartism, as they, as they put it. So you have multiple military forces under different um, agencies. In Moscow, you have a constant sort of everyone-watching-everyone-else kind, kind of environment and such like. And, and yes, you know, any kind of military coup will be very difficult. Military-slash-arms-bearing-services coup is, is going to be very, very difficult. In in Russia, in some ways, though, rather than saying there's a sort of trade-off between that and military preparedness, in some ways, I would say that actually what the war has demonstrated is that one of the biggest risks to this system is precisely by not following its own procedures. Um, You know, we have a war in which the the military and, to a slightly lesser extent, the national guard are fighting even though neither of those agencies had any real stake in how this this war was prepared. Now, I follow a certain number of social media channels um, used by both soldiers, but also particularly the National Guard. And if one looks at the National Guard ones, my God, they are angry. I mean, they are absolutely furious as far as they're concerned. They were just thrown in there as cannon fodder. And frankly, they're right. You know, they're not... They are public order troops. They're not trained or equipped to, for a stand-up fight against mechanized troops. Um, so you know, so they, they feel that they were neglected, that their commanders didn't back them up, etc., etc. And the point is, these are the guys who ultimately are also meant to be the first line of defense against crowds in the streets and so forth. Now, we've not really seen signs of any kind of uh, systemic breakdown in, in discipline, absolutely not. One could imagine a scenario where, for example, you know, there's major you know, in- industrial closures. Crowds on the streets, because frankly it's going to be economic pressure rather than political pressure that actually sort of generates that kind of first wave of, 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 of protest. And you might get the local Amon riot police, um, you know, who were who was, was sent to go and fight in, in Ukraine, thinking, well, do I really want to go and truncheon my next-door neighbor and you know, all the people I know, the people, the parents of my, uh, of my kids' schoolmates and everything else, for, for a Kremlin that abandoned and, and abused us? You know, I think there's going to be a problem there. Likewise, the military. The military is in an interesting position, because on the one hand, it gets all the flack for everything that goes wrong. But on the other hand, they can say, yeah, but this, this wasn't our war in the sense that this is not the way we, particularly the high command, will have that opportunity to say, you know, this is not how we would have fought this war. If Putin had turned to us and said, we're going to invade Ukraine, it would have been handled very, very differently. Um, Which means that in some ways, actually what Putin has done is given some of the other force-bearing agencies, and above all, the ones with the largest number of men with guns, a kind of political get-out-of-jail-free card. But they don 't have to say that they are entirely kind of compromised within this, instead, Putin has put his faith in the intelligence and security community, and look they have all kinds of strengths and so forth, but when it, but, you know if we were ever in that situation of a real you know shooting on the streets thing beyond the Kremlin Guard regiment of the Federal Protection service, you know basically the National Guard and, and, and the military could c- control Moscow quite easily. The only people who could try and stop them would be the police, and I don't think the police would, to be perfectly honest. So I, I think the interesting thing is that we have a system which is still very robust and relies on, frankly, the institutional paranoia of you never know who's listening, you never know who's you know, tapping your phone and everything else. And if people started getting together in little cabals and chatting, then it would quite quickly sort of attract someone's attention. But actually, I also think that a degree of disenchantment, even within the security apparatus, is beginning to become evident. And I think that's one of the reasons why, even though the Federal Security Service was clearly massively negligent and culpable in how it briefed Putin about, oh, we've got all these agents and they're all ready to basically paralyze the country and everything else, that they haven't actually experienced any kind of a a backlash because put it very bluntly, there's a limit to how many people Putin can afford to piss off.
0: Thanks very much. I'm Lise Howard. I'm a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University, and I'm very pleased to be on Don, Don's team this year, on the Russia-Ukraine team, as a, as a senior fellow in residence. Um, I have four questions for you, but I'm going to ask two in the interests of <laughs> yeah. all of us. Um, my first question is, I, I think a lot of what you said has held true since, since 2014 and even earlier. So why 2022? What, what changed and did COVID play a role in the outbreak of this war? Why, why did Putin choose this moment? Um, first question especially when things might have been riper earlier uh, under a different president, for example, in the United States. Second question is, this one's a little more complicated, but I want to push you a little bit more about thinking about the post-conflict architecture. So, you know, Germany and France fought each other, killed millions and millions of each other's people over decades, and then finally decided, okay, We've had enough of this. We're going, you know, France, it was led by France, but really uh, all the European powers around Germany were going to embrace Germany in this very tight institutional hug um, to make sure that this slaughter, the carnage doesn't continue. What kind of institutional arrangements do you think might be plausible for this 11 time zone Eurasian landmass? Like what, the OSCE framework, eh? Um, partnership for peace, maybe. Um, but what what principles do you think that framework m- might undergird a kind of a new thinking uh, of, of Eurasian security?
2: Excellent questions.
0: Um,
2: the first one, I mean look, the interesting thing is this, that what I think is clear is that it's not as though Putin had a long-term unswerving determination to physically and directly control Ukraine. If that had been the place, case, absolutely 2014 would have been the time to have done it, when basically the Ukrainian security forces were in absolute disarray. Um, you know, then, then he could have rolled in, if not in February right after the Crimea, but at some point that year. Um, so clearly his views have indeed shifted over time. Not in the sense of, I mean, I think he he absolutely considers considers Ukraine to be part of Russia's sphere of influence and indeed its historic and cultural patrimony. Um, The idea of a a, a Ukraine that is totally separate from from Russia, I think he regards as anathema. But I think his view was that um, one way or the other, through, through economic ties, through political pressure, through this... Having I mean, quite what one calls the Donbass conflict. It was a bit of an intervention, it was a bit of a civil war, it was a bit of a just sort of anarchic rising or whatever. It was a kind of toxic mix of the whole lot of them. Um, and it's very hard to kind of un- unpick what's what. Um, but you know, that, that would help give him pressure and leverage through Minsk and Minsk II and so forth. So I think that, you know, there was a sense that he had alternative means of, of doing it, and clearly something changed. And I think there's some things that have changed. First of all, is actually the fact that it didn't work, and that it was clear that Ukraine was not therefore going to bowing to pressure. Secondly, I mean, again, it starts moving into the realms of kind of amateur psychology when we start talking about COVID and whether or not his period of you know, isolation from most of his elite. Because the interesting thing is obviously even members of his elite had to isolate for two weeks before they could see him. And If one looks at who actually did this on a regular basis, the interesting thing is they tend to be the hawks. They're people like Patrushev, who basically had a two weeks on, two weeks off work cycle in that respect. Um, Igor Sechin of, of Rosneft People like you know, Prime Minister Mishustin or whatever, they were actually busy administering the country. Yes, they obviously did get some face time, um, but nonetheless, much, much less. And although everyone had their video calls and so forth, you know, we all know from our experiences, look, there is a certain importance to physicality. And I would say particularly in what is a sort of a semi-monarchical system whereby the boss, and um, you know, that to have influence with the boss is arguably the most important political currency of all. Um, and, and then, you know, we don't know how far the, the issue of his, you know, being isolated with Kovalchuk. This is the point that Mikhail Zigar has particularly presented that sort of, you know, this, um, the banker and long-term friend Kovalchuk isolated with him and they you know, spent, spent the evenings fulminating about Ukraine and such like. Could well be true, it's is very hard to actually back it up. But one way or the other, I mean, I think that it, it, sort of the, the COVID era did contribute to a certain sense that something has to be done. But even then, I don't think anything was, was actually sort of determined for absolute. Because we had this, you know, after, in fact, the arrest of Medvedchuk or the move against Medvedchuk, we had the start of the, the build-up on the Ukrainian border um, in, in spring of 2021. And the irony is this, that right up to the point when the first Russian troops crossed the border, Putin was winning. The Ukrainian economy was going sort of spiralling downhill as who wanted to invest under the shadow of Russian guns. Um, a stream of Western leaders were heading to Moscow to try and petition Putin not to start a war, giving him exactly that position of centrality that he clearly sort of craved, not just for personal reasons, but also in terms of again it emphasizes point that Russia is a serious player. And certain European countries' leaderships were trying to put pressure to bear on Kyiv. To make concessions. Um, you know, If he'd been really this, this three-dimensional geopolitical chess player, then he would have just basically let this continue. Why when he did... look, I'll give you two answers. First is a short and honest one. Dunno. The um, slightly more long and speculative one is, I feel in part there was an element of just simply personal impatience. In part there was a sense of a window of opportunity closing. A belief that, you know, again, from his point of view, um, the more the West was now stepping in to support Ukraine, the more he felt it was going to be incorporated. It's not that he was worried about NATO membership, after all. If you look at his words, he always talks about the real threat being NATO's strategic architecture on Ukrainian soil. You know, there'll be NATO missiles that could hit Moscow in whenever it is 7 to 10 minutes or, or whatever. Militarily entirely illiterate because there's lots of other places that that NATO could launch missiles against Moscow if that's what they wanted, but I think it speaks to his concern, that sense of a kind of a a creeping integration. And finally, and this is entirely speculative, I wonder if it's about 2024 and the presidential elections. He seems so fed up with so much of his job these days, Um, and I wonder if he was looking at the thought of another election campaign, however phony, but nonetheless you've got to go and campaign a bit, um, and a thought of you know, another presidential term where you're not dealing with the fun stuff on the whole, you're dealing with diversification of the economy and dealing with the pensions overhang. That's not what he became president for. Um, and I wonder if that sense, given that you know, it is very difficult in a non-law-based state like this to step down, because then everything, your, your fate, your fortune, your family becomes dependent on the goodwill of your successor. I wonder if his thing was... Remember, this is a man who believed it was going to be two weeks and it was all going to be over. But that was going to be his capstone triumph. That then, you know, Belarus is already pretty much dependent on Moscow. Now we put our own guys in charge in Ukraine. The three great Slavic nations have been regathered. And he is, you know, clearly Vladimir the Great. He ascends into the pantheon of Russian state-building heroes. And he's pretty much safe. That he can now pick his successor... Step back, but essentially that he'll be bulletproof. I don't know if that's the case, but the point is that would make sense in the sense of if you think of 2022 as the sort of capture and pacification year, then 2023 is the year to build up the, the successor, and then you can sort of step away. I don't know. Um, second question, which I've totally forgotten, please give me, remind me. Sorry? Oh, God, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, here's the problem. Things like OSCE and, and such okay, so, like. No, we're, we're having this conversation about
0: containment. There, there, there's still, we still have an, a hangover of containment. I mean, that is how Americans think. Mm-hmm. We, we, it's very hard for us to move out of the containment framework. But so, I don't know, you're on the other side of the pond. What else is there? Look,
2: I mean, con- containment is fine until
0: containment breaks. I mean, that, that, that's what
2: it is. It just simply pens it. It basically causes either you hope that somehow organically what's being contained metamorphoses and suddenly it's a butterfly. <laughs> or you just think, well, look, at least it'll last until someone else is in charge. Neither of which really are, are, are good options. No, but I think the thing is, you, you mentioned things like OSCE, Partnership for Peace, and so forth. These are all institutional moves that essentially are, on a state level, about trying to ensure that no one invades anyone else, and that's really important. But it's not the answer. If you look at what, what worked with Germany, it wasn't just simply membership of structures. It was the fact that there, there was a root and branch attempt to basically make Germans feel that they were Europeans. And it worked. So in this respect, I mean, we need, yes, of course, we need all kinds of guarantees and such like. But we also need to do everything we can to love bomb the Russians. To make them feel that we actually, we regard them as Europeans. And that fundamental point, are Russians Europeans? A lot of countries now, you know, you go to Warsaw, and you're probably tarred and feathered for for suggesting this notion. But the Russians themselves, it doesn't matter if they're in Vladivostok or wherever, in in some ways even more so in Vladivostok, because they feel that much more conscious of the sort of the tides of of Asia before them. But, you know, Russians themselves regard themselves as Europeans. I was in Kazan a couple of years back, no, actually three years back, Um, and the interesting thing was talking to a mixed group of uh, people from Tatarstan, some of whom were ethnic Russians, some of whom were absolutely Tatars, in, 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 you know in terms of their outlook, and they were proud of their, their faith, they were, they were Muslim and so forth. But the interesting thing was there was a consensus amongst them all that, well, of course we're Europeans. Why is that an issue? So I, I think the thing is we need to, yes, fine, we'll, 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 we'll create whatever kind of organizational superstructures would, would work. But we also actually need to just not think that that's the job done. That's just the first step. We also then need to work out how we integrate Russians into this. That's harder. Okay, I want to
1: get some questions from the online audience in, but two two more before we do that.
2: One, I will try and, and be more brief in my replies, so we can. <laughs> That's always <laughs> I'm a sure you to.
0: Uh,
3: Hello, thank you so much. My name is Natia Cankwetadze, and I'm a PhD candidate at George Mason University. Uh, and I'm also Georgian. I come from Tbilisi, uh, so my comment and the question will be actually to bring the one more layer in in your analysis and in your discussion, and this is actually the the reality of the post-Soviet countries and the reality of the Eastern European um, countries. Because um, discussing uh, Russia's or Putin's actually actions uh, as uh, self-defensive, um, it's a bit scary for us who live in the post-Soviet. Uh, countries because before 2022 and before 2014, there was 2008, there was the war in Georgia, uh, and before that there was the Munich Security Conference when Putin was very loud and very clear actually about his intention and he speaks again and again about the post- like Soviet Union and calls the breakup of the Soviet Union as the greatest. tragedy. So I like for us basically we may be pretty subjective in this because this is an existential threat for all of us, Uh, but we see that it's not necessarily teaching the lesson to the West because of the history, but it's the teaching lessons to those countries who actually dare to be, uh, to take slightly different paths and to not depend the Russia entirely. And we've seen this throughout the empire, throughout the Soviet Union and in in the last 30 years as well so i'm really wondering what is the place in your analysis why russia is behaving the way or the putin actually because the one of the first uh, description of this war was the putin's war not russia's war but it's changed because of the support that the diaspora shows to these wars i mean Russians, and because of the some not big of the resistance actually that we see um, among Russians, not only in Russia but also abroad. In Russia, it makes sense because many of them are actually in the in the prison. So um, I was wondering, like, what is the the place of the um, of these countries, like the post-Soviet countries, and their um, existential threat that these countries actually experience, and is it really teaching the lesson? To the West, or it's actually continuous attempt of teaching lesson to those countries, um, not particularly. So that's my question for you. Sure. Thank you. I mean,
2: very fair point. I mean, look. Uh, again, as part and parcel of Putin's 19th century approach to politics, of course, great powers are marked by a sphere of influence. That's one of the things that makes them great powers. Russia deserves to be a great power. Russia is a great power. And therefore in part that that is manifest through a sphere of influence. And if countries wish to break out of that, well of course that's that's a challenge to to, to the power of the metropolis. I'm not in any way advocating that as an approach. I'm just saying that is, I think, how Putin sees it. And overlaying with that is this sense of competition with the West. Because when when, when countries try to break away, you know, it's not actually that we're talking you know, when we're talking about a country like Georgia you know, at the time, you know, Saakashvili was making absolutely no um, secret of the fact that he wanted to be integrated with and close to the West. Um, you know, and It doesn't matter whether we're talking about him sending troops to, to fight in US-led overseas missions or, or anything else. Now, the point is, I think, to Putin, what was actually something that reflected a genuine national desire within the country he automatically interprets as a kind of a hijack an attempt by the west to steal one of one of his countries or one of Russia's countries so i mean i think the, 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 this is the sort of the, the fundamental problem that you know he has this very simplistic manichean you know countries are either subordinated or they are challenging and if they are challenging they they need to be taught a lesson kind of kind of ways in, in which he thinks about it so i think you know, this is really the the essence of, of the, the the war in georgia it was an attempt to prove to the georgians no you don't get to break away it was an attempt to use georgia as a sign to other post soviet states that no 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 you, you are part of this sphere of influence and it was a, a, a rebuke as he saw it to the west you know you, you, you think you're going to try and leave some of these countries away from us not going to happen the one thing i would say is i mean let's go back to that comment of putin's about collapse of the Soviet Union being one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes. We have to take that in context. He was talking very, very specifically about the way it's, it, as he sees it, stranded Russian communities in a whole variety of new countries. He's also very explicitly said that, um, you know, it, what was it, the phrase about, uh, you know, anyone who doesn't miss the Soviet Union has no head, has no heart. Anyone who wants to reconstitute it has no head. I mean, this is not an attempt to rebuild the Soviet Union. He wants influence over these countries rather than actually direct absorption into the Russian Federation. Because certainly, I mean, never mind Georgia, You know, the idea that Putin would like to see Tajikistan and Uzbekistan under his, you know, a part of the Russian Federation, no, I mean, that's not the case. So, I mean, I think, again, it, what it shows is, again, the... The, the automatic assumptions and the prejudices and the nationalism of that homo sovieticus generation who absolutely just sort of more can't quite cope with the idea that countries like Georgia or indeed Ukraine or Moldova or whatever can have true agency and deserve to have autonomy and sovereignty.
1: Okay, let's take some questions from the audience and there are needy ones. <laughs> Uh, Mark, you've referred to Putin's annexation of the four Ukrainian regions as a burning of boats moment. How does that affect, it informs his willingness to use nuclear weapons? I start with the big one first.
2: Yeah. I still think, and maybe I'm just simply sort of uh, naively optimistic, that the chances of nuclear use is slender. Not entirely impossible, but, but slender. And in some ways, the more he talks about it, the more comfortable I feel. Because again, it says something about the degree to which he's trying to use this. You know, He knows that there are constituencies within the West who are deeply scared by this thought of escalation. And the more he scares them, the more they start writing op-eds saying this is the time to be making some kind of concessions to, to end this war before it becomes escalates disastrously. Um, in terms of, 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 of the annexations, look, already... If we take Putin at face value, you know, we have seen Russian territory being occupied by those evil Ukrainians, and there has been no signs of great escalation. Again, this is the whole point about red lines and pink lines. Um, you know In, in, in theory look, I, I, you know, he, he would have practical reasons why he wants to retain the land bridge to Crimea, for example. Um, but I think really only Crimea, truly. Sort of, does he truly regard as, as Russian territory? This, this is a political gambit. Frankly, even the Lugansk and, and Donetsk People's Republics, I think that he would regard as eminently sacrificable if he had to, or whatever. So I, th- I, think, I think we're a long way from him feeling in that kind of absolutely terrifying existential moment where he feels that it's worth just, you know, you know one last throw of the dice. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I promised you me, so a two-parter here. Uh, The C word. What are the chances that the uh, Putin regime will collapse? You probably hear that Mm -hmm. every day. And second, uh, the future role of so-called liberals, so-called Vladimir Karamazov, Navalny, and the others, given the situation they face right now.
2: I mean, let me start with that one. And, and look, this is a really difficult one because I am you know, in awe of the, the, the courage, the integrity and the commitment that they've shown. But to be honest, in some ways I think that if they have a role, it will be as a symptom of change that has happened rather than actually in any way a cause. This regime is gonna keep them in prison so long as it feels that they're, they're dangerous and, and, and worrisome. And in any case, I don't honestly think that even my most optimistic projections do not see this regime giving way to a democratic regime, as we would understand it. My view is that this regime will give way to a regime of pragmatic kleptocrats who have all kinds of good reasons to improve relations with the West and even bring in a certain degree of rule of law in their own country, purely for their own interests. The point is that you can have rule of law without democracy, but you can't have democracy without rule of law. This was the mistake of the 1990s, frankly, in Russia. Uh, And so maybe, you might say, a a kleptocrat generation perhaps will create the preconditions which might mean that the next political generation. So, I I don't know, Navalny's grandkid for president. Um, But in terms of, of, of regime collapse, You know, there was was the interesting recent David Treisman article in in Foreign Affairs, which I think made made a lot of very good points, that, you know, rather than coup, though I couldn't totally rule out the kind of February 1917 moment where, you know, a collection of the sort of powerful uniform figures get together and say, it's time you step down, but it's highly unlikely still. But I think, I'm not sure if I'd see kind of collapse in a sort of, immediate, disastrous thing. I actually see decay as being more likely. I mean, I think, you know, or, or sort of if, if one has to play out scenarios, my most likely scenario is basically Brezhnev 2.0, an increasingly gerontocratic regime presiding over an increasingly stagnant economy, spending far more than it can possibly afford on, on, on military adventures and its own security, in which, you know, the population is just more and more despondent but can't organize. The elite is more and more cynical and corrupt. Um, and, and look, at some point, that then becomes vulnerable to some kind of black swan event, whether it's a, a Gorbachev or whether it's economic collapse or whatever else, or Putin's illness. I mean, again, in a deinstitutionalized system like this, there isn't a Communist Party equivalent. Um, you know, if, if Putin gets seriously ill, there's no vice president. Constitution has absolutely no um, terms for a temporary withdrawal from office, only just simply the president is no longer the president. So I, th- I think they, they, they could be crises down the line, but it's more that what I see is, is decay in capacity more than anything else.
1: We have time for a couple more and I'll change tone a little bit. Uh, one of the uh, online viewers asked, is there any chance that leaders of say India, Brazil, or South Africa, maybe others, can weigh in? effectively with him to get Putin, to get him to change course. Uh, They didn't mention the Chinese, but you could throw that in there, too.
2: Exactly. I I mean, I think change course is one thing. I mean, I think we have seen India and China um, both overtly and particularly behind closed doors pushing on the nuclear issue. I mean, it's very clear that China and, and India do not want the nuclear taboo broken for their own reasons. And I think that actually probably will, you know, If if Putin were tempted to to take that particular route, that would be one of the factors he would have to consider. Um, More broadly, I think that, first of all, the amount of pressure that can be brought to bear by any country other than China is distinctly limited. Secondly, I'm not convinced that anyone really would want to. I mean, this is an inconvenient war for a lot of countries. China you know, Ukraine was its biggest um, export, you know, import source of corn. There are actually substantial amounts of Chinese investment in Ukraine, um, but still, it's not important enough that it's worth breaking with a country which may well be well on the way to becoming a vassal state in the next 10 years. Um, so, I, I, I think, sadly, could these countries have a have a role? Maybe. Are they going to not accept those very very narrow specifics of? certain kind of policies related to the war that they don't like.
1: Yeah. Uh, and a final question from an audience online audience member. Uh, gets to your book topic. Uh, was there any hope to avoid this war in the first place? What could have been done a year ago, eight years ago, 15 years ago, or the
2: 1990s? Yeah, this, this is the whole kind of you know, time machine and, and, and killing Hitler sort of, sort of question. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things. But I think the trouble is, this always implies a certain degree of kind of determinism. That Oh, well, if you follow this track, then it creates a whole different sort of historical timeline. It's always very hard to track that. Sure, in the 1990s, we could have been much less cynical and much more supportive of Russia's gem- democratic development. Um, and yes, that might have meant sitting back and letting the communists win an election. Well, that's the thing about elections. Sometimes the guys you don't want win will. Um, that might have made it less likely that there will be a Putin-type figure. Who knows? But more sort of broadly, I don't think this... Frankly, I think even in that last week before the invasion, Putin was still havering. This is not a man who, after all, actually tends to be decisive and daring in his moves. I think he was still havering between not invading, invading on a limited basis to basically just take the Donbass, and what he ended up doing. And could things have gone other ways? Yeah, of course. Could we have influenced it? I have a problem with the Western approach of strategic ambiguity, which tends to come down to don't do this. We think you're going to do this. Don't do this. Bad things will happen. Trust us. Bad things will happen if you do that. Uh, And that's fine up to a point, but I think he'd reached a stage where he he thought that we were, frankly, flabby, lazy hypocrites. Who wouldn't have the the capacity or the will to actually do anything about it? And let's be honest. We surprised ourselves by just how effective and unified the initial response, both in terms of sanctions and support for Ukraine, was. So in some ways, we maybe shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, going going back to Georgia, I mean the shockingly poor response to the invasion of Georgia, in which we sort of wagged our fingers and then offered a reset. Um, or the, the very mild response to the annexation in 2014. You know, it, it took, frankly, the shooting down of a civilian plane to actually create any kind of meaningful sanctions, and even then, not that meaningful. So, you know, we, we, we could have shown greater will beforehand, but also, right up to that point, I think we should have abandoned strategic ambiguity. Behind closed doors, because there's no point making these a kind of open, beating-of-the-chest moment, but we should have been specific. We think, you know, we, our intelligence shows that you're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. And we want you to know that if you do that, this is what we're going to do. Not there will be bad consequences, but these very specific ones. Because again, I think up to that point, Putin just did not believe that we were sincere.
1: Great. Mark, this could go on for all day. And I we'll hope to have you back. Thank you so much. My pleasure. The book is Putin's Wars, and what's the publisher? It's published by Osprey Bloomsbury. Okay, great. Coming out next week. Thank you for coming. Thank you for our online uh, participants. Uh, Again, thank you again, Mark.
3: Thank you
0: for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.